Hello, everybody. I'm Peter Burson, and welcome to still another thrilling episode of Money Talks and Bullshit Walks, or as those in the know would know it as MTBW, the history of Philadelphia, green to Kenny, 1980 to present. And as always, I'm joined by the king of the Wissahickon, Joe Willard. Uh, as most of you don't know, Joe was crowned the king of the Wissahickon by the now lapsed Treaty of the Ridge and Creamery. As usual, Joe is, well, he's just shaking his head. Say hello, Joe. Uh, hello, Joe. As most of you do know, Joe is our Swiss Army knife. He writes, he directs, he texts, which everybody knows that, that's, that I'm very thankful for. Uh, in fact, I thank God, and I'm not religious. And he throws in his two Bitcoins. Uh, so, Joe, thank you for coming. Uh, and uh, we do have, back by popular demand, uh, Mike Freeman. Uh, Mike, I believe this is your third or fourth time here at MTBW? This just may be my third. All right, well... Three's, three's the charm. Uh, Mike's going to bring with him some more great stories. Uh, this will be sort of a 1980s recap. Uh, and the other thing about Joe, Joe, about Mike, and I think you probably already know it, is, is Mike is uh, the only adult on this webcast. I myself uh, feel pretty proud to just be a house trained. So, uh, Mike, let's get started with your recap of the 80s. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Before, before we do, I would like to know if either of you know exactly what you were doing on April Fool's Day, 1985. 1985. Mm. Uh, hmm, 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 hmm. Rick, why is this perfect game? Uh, no. Um, I don't know, Pete. All right. Well, that's funny. Funny you shouldn't. That was the day of the perfect game. The perfect game being Villanova beating Georgetown for the national championship, and they beat them 86 to 85 uh, or 84. I'm not positive, but I do know it was the perfect game. Harold Jensen hit the winning shot. I think they only missed, that is Villanova, I think only missed one shot in the uh, second half. Uh, the winning shot uh, was, I believe Patrick Ewing was just incensed by it. Uh, it was a long time rivalry and Villanova somehow won. Raleigh Massimino, who was known as Daddy Mass, was jumping up and down. He sort of looked like Danny DeVito back then. And um, he just was running up and down the court with his head and his, his hair in his head. Uh, and his hands were in his head and everything else that you can imagine. Uh, the game was a lot different then, and I'll quit now, but the, there was no three-point shot. There was no shot clock teams that were underdogs like Villanova could hold the ball for as long as they want. And Villanova played, I believe, a four corners offense where there was just all the players went into four, into the four corners and the point guard, uh, who was the point guard? Was it McLean? Gary McLean? 
Yeah, and he had the ball and he would pass it and they would pass it. So that was the perfect game, 1985. I know I was jumping a little ahead of myself, but I figure it's my fucking podcast, so I can do what I want. All right, Mike, let's get started with the recap of 1980. 1980. Well, um, when I think about 1980, I think about one thing and one thing only, and that's Philadelphia sports teams, because that was the year that um, the Phillies went to the series, of course, and won. And um, the um, the Eagles went to the Super Bowl. That was in January of 81, but still, it was their 1980 season that got them there. I think the Thwacksters, as we call the Flyers, um, got to the NHL finals. They didn't win the cup that year, did they? I don't believe they did. No. But they got to the finals. And then the Sixers, of course, got to the finals, but they got beat by the Lakers. Right. That was that was during the three-way tong war between the Sixers, the hated Celtics, and uh, the Lakers. Yeah, that was um, that was the series that Magic Johnson played center. Right. And, and point guard and – Right. Probably every position on the floor. That that was that and he was, was great. Yeah, and um, Ben Simmons should play like him, but he doesn't. He doesn't. Um, and then um, in nineteen eighty, besides the sports teams, oh, and the the, the other thing about it was nineteen eighty was the year I saw and talked to two superstars in Philadelphia. One was Pete Rose, and the other was Julius Irving, huh. and I saw Pete Rose walking down Locust Street at 15th one night. He had his Prince Valiant haircut and his, uh, his remember, he, he used to wear those, um, I don't know what kind of material it was, like Dacron or Rayon. He, he wore those Rayon shirts and he had a Nehru jacket. He, he looked like a country bumpkin um, come to the big city. And he had one woman on each arm. And this was when he was married. And um, so, he, and I think he had an apartment there at the Academy House on Locust near 15th. All right, I know where that is. I believe, and, and so I saw him out on the street and I said, hey, Pete Rose. And he said, leave me alone. <laughs> it's quite a conversation. And then Julius Irving, um, I was sitting at a bar on, yeah, oh, 16th. It was 16th near Spruce. I forget the name of the place. Was that and upstairs? I, I know where you're talking about. It was like that upstairs joint. No, not upstairs. It was um, uh, ugh, boy, I can't remember. Um, it, I was sitting at the bar and I was waiting for someone, and the door opens and it's it's winter, and in walks Julia Serving. He's wearing a, a purple suit with um, a purple tie, and patent leather shoes, black patent leather shoes, and a, and a uh, camel hair overcoat, like a navy blue. And yeah. um, he came walking by me and I said, Dr. J, you look like a million bucks. And he said, hey, thank you. Thank you, man. And um, he stuck around and talked to me for a few minutes, unlike Pete Rose, who wanted nothing to do with me. Well, Rose was on that 80s championship team. Uh, and my, I guess my question is, I, I don't know if uh, many of our potsters know, Rose probably would have, uh, I know definitely he would have been a uh, first ballot uh, Hall of Famer, but he was later, uh, actually, 
he was the manager of the Cincinnati Reds and got caught betting on games and was banned from baseball. And I don't remember exactly how long ago, but it was a while. So uh, I guess my question, since you're talking about roses, do you think they baseball should lift the ban on Rose's uh, participation in baseball and allow him to enter the uh, HOF? And for you people out there, that's Hall of Fame. <laughs> you know, I've always felt that Rose should be allowed in because you look at some of the other people in the Hall of Fame and some of their moral transgressions, they make Rose's look like nothing. And yeah, they so, should have a section, a room off to the side, you know, where little kids can't go into and have him and a few of those other guys in that one. Yeah, you know, Ty Cobb and Honus Wagner and some of those other guys. Um, yeah, Rose was just a great player. And uh, when he came to the Phillies, he definitely put them over the top. Like yeah. without Rose, I doubt they would have won the series. He just instilled in them everything that he brought to the Cincinnati Reds and that the Phillies lacked. Right, and, and, and we should just mention briefly that the Reds team he came from was known as the Big Red Machine, and they did have uh, other players that ended up in the Hall of Fame, uh, including Joe Morgan and uh, Johnny Bench. I'm not sure if, if any I remember anybody else, but those two guys uh, were really Davey great. Concepcion. Dave Concepcion. And uh, uh, who was their center fielder? They had a really great center fielder. Um, I can't uh, remember. Uh, I'll remember, but it'll be after okay. this podcast because I'm sure everybody knows that I have a severe case of CRS, which uh, in case you didn't know is can't remember shit. So <laughs> um, I think it was Cesar Geronimo, wasn't it? It could well be. It, there's a name. Well, yeah. Wait a, I, wait, wait a minute. Was George Foster on that team? Yep. Oh, yeah. You're right. George First base. Yeah. He did hit a bit. Yeah. So, Joe Morgan. You mentioned Joe Morgan, right? Yeah. So. Joe Morgan has a book out. He can't write, his, can he? His memoirs. Wow. Oh, hey. Ken Griffey. Forgot Ken Griffey. Senior. Oh, Griffey. Team. Ken Griffey was on the 80 team? Well, Man, 75, 76 seasons he was on. And Geronimo wow. was on that team, too. Not wow. Yeah, the Phillies had trouble with them. But they, they did have... Yeah, name uh, me one pitcher. For the Phillies? No, for the, the 1980 Reds. Don Gullett. Don Gullett, yep. Freddie Norman. I don't remember him. He was a little, little uh, screwball type, you he know, placement. That's, that's, a, that's a pitch that's gone out of style. <laughs> so, um, all right. So you got to You got to think about um, when you think 1980 in Philly, you, you think about that, but then there's also um, the John McCullough murder, which long John. Uh, uh, he was the um, roofers union head. And um, if you remember, a, a guy named Willard Moran, who was sort of a low-level thug, was hired by um, what, what used to be the Bruno mob, but since Bruno got assassinated earlier that year, was in the hands of another guy. And that guy ordered the hit on McCullough. Was that Willard Nicky, Moran? Was that, that? Was that Nicky Crow? 
No, not Nikki Crow, some other guy. And um, the, Willard Moran posed as a flower delivery man. And he, he rang McCullough's bell and McCullough answered the door and Willard Moran shot him and ran. So the reason I remember that so, um, uh, so, well, now, so well today is that um, I was working at the paper on a Friday night and this happened on a Friday night. Um, but his, his viewing was on a Friday as well. And um, they, the city editor at the time sent me up to the viewing, which was way up in the far Northeast. And the rule in journalism was in newspapers was if you're going to a viewing and it's a mob viewing or um, something like, like what McCullough, I won't say McCullough was a mob viewing, but it was a, it was about as close as you, you can get to a mob viewing without being the mob. The rule of thumb was eyes and ears only. Don't talk to anyone. When you're covering a wake, don't talk to anyone if it's one of those wakes because you'll only bring trouble on yourself. So just observe, keep your eyes open, eyes and ears only. So I get there, it's a bitter cold night. And um, I guess it was in January that year, 1980. I'm not, I'm not positive. And um, so I, I followed the... Th I followed my um, city editor's instructions, eyes and ears only. And somehow I forgot at one point the instructions. And I introduced myself to someone while waiting in line outside to get into the funeral home to view McCullough's body. And the next thing I know, I'm surrounded by four or five guys who were telling me to get the fuck out of here. And if you don't leave, we're going to kill you and that kind of stuff. So I said, all right, all right, I don't want any trouble. I'm turning around and I, I turn around to leave and one of them kicks me right in the ass. And, and I fell down on the sidewalk and then I picked myself up and kept on going. And um, so the next day uh, was a Saturday. In the Saturday Bulletin, um, which was still around then, it was going to die two years later, but uh, the, um, the Bulletin had a story about the wake and they said that I had been kicked in the buttocks. <laughs> Philly hospitality. Yeah. And then a year later, there was a memorial for McCullough. And I get a phone call at the paper. Is this Freeman? Yeah. Um, this is, uh, I don't even know if he gave me his name. He said, we're having a memorial for John McCullough. We want to make up for what we did at the viewing. You're invited. And wow. um I, I went to my editor and I said, hey, I just got invited to a memorial for John McCullough. Can I go? And he said, no, that's, we don't want that. You got other things to do. So I never, I never made it up there. But I thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, there was the Angelo Bruno hit. That was 1980 as well. And um, January of 81, if I can shift over into 81, because we mentioned the Eagles. Of course, the Eagles lost the Super Bowl 27-10 to the Raiders for $1. Who was the linebacker who intercepted um, Jaworski twice? What, wasn't it somebody Martin? Yes, Rod. Rod Martin. Yeah, whatever became of him. I don't know, but I, I, will, I will say two things. I was at the Super Bowl uh, with my uncle, uh, and uh, that's a, that may be an entire episode of MTBW. But I, I remember that. I, I slept in his car, which was another <laughs> uh, That's an episode. You know, 
but but I, I do want to say, Mike, uh, he, the the show is named after Abscam, which occurred in 1980. Yeah, so, yeah, Abscam. That's another. Uh, that was another great moment in Philadelphia history. And, um, and I see Ozzy got in some more trouble a couple weeks ago. Yeah, I, his name keeps coming up in uh, the Trump when the Trump people talk about how terrible Philadelphia is. They don't name him. They don't mention him by name, but they talk about a former congressman. There's a bunch of former congressmen that got locked up in that. Uh, a letterer got locked up. Uh, there was another one. You didn't get locked up, but then you got Araketti over in Camden. Um, well, there was, a, there was a U.S. senator from Jersey. Right. Oh, Harrison Williams. Yeah, that's right. But there was another guy. Um, he was the guy who was going to um, he was going to uh, introduce legislation to yeah give some advantage to a some kind of mine in Africa. Yeah, that, that, it was on, it was uncut gems. Yeah, it was it was so stupid. The whole thing was so stupid, but it was funny. It was just funny. It was like um, the bumbling criminals of yesteryear. And then they, they ended up making a great movie about it. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. With um, uh, uh, Amy Adams was in it. Uh, wasn't Bradley Cooper in that? Oh, yeah. He played me. He played you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is that, but, that was because Johansson was on, uh, on your arm? <laughs> um, so then, so that was, Jan so then the Eagles... Yeah, the Eagles lost the Super Bowl. I was working that night, and they sent me out into the streets of Philadelphia to do a man on the street about the Eagles' loss. And I'm telling you, it was the most depressing assignment I've ever been on. I was walking around South Philly trying to find people to talk to, and the few people who would talk to me, either they told me to get the fuck out of here or they barely said anything because everyone was so depressed about the Eagles. And then I think it was the next week, the very next week, John Lennon got shot in New York. Mm. And they sent me up to New York um, that night. It was a Sunday night. Pete, we were, at, we were drinking beer at the Piney. Oh, the old Pine Bar at 23rd and, and Pine Street. Uh, it's we were there. It's, it's, it's some sort of highfalutin uh, Italian restaurant now. I can't even pronounce its name. I don't know if they're open, but um, we were there. I, we were drinking Rolling Rock, and um, the TV was on, and it said John Lennon assassinated, or John Lennon shot on Manhattan Street. And when I got home, because we didn't have cell phones then, when I got home, my phone was ringing. It was the paper saying, get up to New York right now. So... I got in my car and um, drove up to New York. It was at the middle of the night. And uh, I get to the toll booth at the Lincoln Tunnel. And I say, how do I get to... Um... Lennon lived in an apartment building called the Dakota. Right. Which was way up on the west side, I think. And um, I said, how do I get there? And the, the guy just looked at me. <laughs> he didn't say a word. So I had to find my way up there. And... Um, there was a huge crowd outside the Dakota at that point, and uh, it was a wild scene. I ha and I didn't, I hadn't brought any clothes with me, and it was freezing cold. I had to buy a sweater the next morning. We were up all night, standing there outside his place, just talking to people. It was pretty wild. 
Hmm. So that was that was 80, 81. Um, Mike, let me ask you a question. How would you describe uh, what Philadelphia looked like in 1980? Or as some people would have called it, Philadelphia. How well, would, how would you um, describe what it looked like? When was Liberty Place built? Was that that was the early eighties? Yeah, but it was not then. It was more towards eighty six. Yeah, it, it was. It would be a while before Liberty Place would go up. But downtown was kind of um, it was a little down at the mouth, you know, little um, not much happening. The restaurant revolution hadn't started yet. Um, I think Steve Poses had Frog at Sixteenth and Locust. Right. And and then there was. Astral Plane at 17th right. and Lombard, and Lombard, there were yeah. a few others, but but the restaurant revolution or renaissance, whatever it's called, really hadn't started in earnest. So downtown was kind of, you know, they said they used to say Philadelphia rolled the sidewalks up at night. Yeah. And it was kind of like that. There wasn't much to do uh, downtown. Now, there was a disco. Pete, if you remember the disco yeah. on Sansom Street. Sansom Street. Um, second story. Yes, second story. Second story. So there, that was that was around, but that that only lasted a few years. The disco era was come and gone. Um, and then there was another joint at Nineteenth and Chestnut, I think it was, or maybe yeah, Nineteenth and Chestnut. Maybe it was Twentieth. That was a disco. That only lasted a few few years. But there really wasn't much to do downtown at night. It, yeah, it's it nothing was, like it is now. And no, some of the other neighborhoods in Philly were were not anywhere close to where, where what they are today, like no, Old City. Well, it almost didn't exist then. But you know, I, as I recall it, there was there was it was pretty crime ridden in other neighborhoods. Uh, it was littered. Um, the population, I guess, was shrinking. Uh, we were getting, uh, I would say, poorer and poorer in the school system. Uh, was going down well slow um, and we also had a lot of graffiti and I'm not talking about the graffiti uh, that has turned into murals uh, which thank God for Jane Golden uh, we had things like cool Earl written all over the place and there was no real artwork to it um, so that's what I remember Joe do you have any uh, cornbread remember cornbread yeah cornbread yeah, yeah. started in Philly that's right, cornbread. So um, uh, when we get to eighty-one, since we covered, you know, eighty, uh, the only thing I would talk about in eighty with the Eagles is Dick Vermeil, uh, who was the coach. And Vermeil, as I recall, uh, was sort of an intense guy. If you looked up the name intense, you'd see a picture of Vermeil just grinding his teeth. Uh, so that, that's, that, that's what I remember uh, about 80. I think uh, we sort of talked about the discos and everything. So um, do, you, do you remember when Dennis Miller was on Monday Night Football for one year? No, I don't. Um, I, it was in the 80s. And um, he was a comedian from Saturday Night Live. Yeah. And um, he was talking about Dick Vermeil one night on, on SNL. And he said, remember Vermeil used to cry at press yes. conferences? He'd start crying. And uh, Dennis Miller said, yeah, Dick Vermeil, he, he was crying more than Sylvia Plath on pepper spray. 
<laughs> was, I, don't know, I don't know how many people actually got the reference, but it was pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, Philadelphia was not a uh, glamorous place back then. It's not that it is now, but it's a whole lot better and different now. Like, if you remember um, Kensington and Port Richmond and Fishtown back then? Yeah, they were a lot. I mean, let's just put it this way. They were called the Badlands. Absolutely. And Brewery Town, like up on Girard Avenue, you wouldn't believe it now. It's hipster, hipster yeah. haven. But not then. Not then. So for me, 1981 was the Philadelphia Journal. Um, the Remember the journal? It was the other tabloid in town. Uh, vaguely. It started in 77, and it, it had its demise in 81. And it, it sort of, um, it was at the end of 81, maybe December. And at the end of its life, it sort of went nuts. Like they, they pulled out all the stops. They had a page seven pinup every issue. They, they published every day except the weekends. I think they were just Monday through Friday. And they had a page seven bikini clad, you know, local girl for every issue. And toward the end of it, the life of the journal, the, the page seven started to get racier and racier. Like the bikinis got skimpier. The, the, uh, Facial expressions of the women got a little more provocative. It was just, they did a lot of crazy stuff. And But when they came in, um, they were, the paper was owned by a guy from Montreal named Pierre Pelodeau. Remember that guy, Pete? That one is a CRS. <laughs> he, uh, well, you know, I worked at the Daily News. We were the tabloid in town. We were the sports right. paper and the city paper. And here comes... Pierre Pelado from Montreal to start another tabloid. It was like, we thought we were going to have a tabloid war. And for a couple of years, the competition was, I wouldn't say intense, but it, it, it ramped up everyone's game. And I remember the Inquirer um, beefed up their sports section and um, so did the daily news. People got hired because the journal came in, but then in, they just couldn't make it. They were only around for, four to five years and then they were gone and papers back then cost 15 cents but the journal charged 25 and um people thought that was crazy oh yeah in philadelphia that would yeah that was crazy yes crazy stuff Wild now stuff. now <laughs> two months after that two months after the journal went down oh I, I i had a story about the journal let me just tell you one thing um they um you know, in the true tabloid tradition, they loved uh, plays on words and headlines. So one night at the Pen and Pencil Club, which was the after hours nightclub for journalists, uh, it was up on, um, and I think it's still there, 17th or, or 16th and um, it's between Locust and Walnut, whatever that, Latimer. La yeah, Latimer. I think, yes, it's still there. So... Um, People were there and you used to go there after work and they were up until four in the morning or something like that. And you could unwind after work. Well, one night a guy um, who worked at the Inquirer, who was still there, I won't identify him, got a load on and he came outside and there was a police car sitting there um, on the sidewalk 
and the, the cops for, were not in the car, but the window was open of the car. So <laughs> this guy proceeds to pee right into the window from the sidewalk. Like he just emptied everything he had onto the, the passenger side seat, front seat <laughs> of the police car. So the journal's headline, and this guy was a copy editor who, you know, someone who wrote headlines. And um, the, uh, the journal's headline the next day was um, copy editor, inky copy editor uses wrong head. Head was short for headline. <laughs> so, and the guy got arrested. Um, that, you know, they, the cops came back as he was in the act and he got arrested. Well, you know, I don't want to say anything, but, you know, Philadelphians, especially in ver various events, are really not, they're, they, they don't just use urinals. Uh, I've seen things, I saw some things at the vet, which, which I <laughs> could, couldn't. Uh, that's, yeah, you can't compare. Yeah, because it was a mess. I was in training, Joe, you don't know. Yeah, some things happen at the vet that probably are best left. Well, um, when, we, when we get a little further on uh, into the early 90s, we'll talk about that. Um, <laughs> so, um, it, we're getting into 81, but before, before that... Hey, Potsters, that concludes part one of a trip through the 80s. Sports and politics come, go together. Stay tuned for parts two, three, and four. That'll be coming up over the next couple of weeks. Thank you for listening.